Hello and welcome to Oats for Breakfast. Oats for Breakfast is affiliated with the Socialist Project, an eco-socialist organization based in Toronto. My name is Matt. Today I'll be interviewing Tony Leah and Rebecca Keach. Tony is chairperson of Unifor Local 222's Political Action Committee and works as an industrial mechanic millwright. Rebecca is a rank-and-file activist who works as a production assembly operator. Tony and Rebecca are involved in Green Jobs Oshawa, an initiative calling for GM's Oshawa plant to come under public ownership. GM is planning to wind down vehicle assembly at the plant by December. Those involved in Green Jobs Oshawa say that if it was to come under public ownership, the plant could be used to produce green vehicles. This would mean that those employed at the plant could keep their jobs and the plant could be part of the transition to a green economy. Tony and Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi. So I thought it would be a good way to start our interview today with just a bit of a, a background about the history of the GM plant in Oshawa. Uh, maybe you could talk a bit about the GM facility's relationship to the Oshawa community and its significance to the people who live there and, and your own experiences working for GM. Sure. I, I think that... The Oshawa plant is incredibly important in the in the history of the labor movement of this country. Vehicle production actually goes back into the 1800s when there was a, a major carriage works. GM took over in uh, around 1918, I think, and there was been vehicle um, uh, cars and trucks produced in Oshawa, and it was a, a really leading center. Uh, but it was also the place where industrial unionism was established in Canada with the, the 1937 strike and the uh, recognition of the United Auto Workers. In, uh, in recent years, um, there have been really a huge, like a, an incredible uh, productive capacity in Oshawa. At one time, there was a, a truck plant operating on three shifts and two car plants, one operating on three shifts and one operating on two shifts. So producing um, 800 or 900,000 vehicles a year. Uh, Rebecca, how long have you been working at the GM facility? I've been at the GM facility since 2006. Both of my grand Dad's retired from there. It's a pretty important part of Oshawa culture and community. Um, at one point, uh, pretty well, you either worked there or you knew somebody else that was working there, and it it was responsible for raising the standard of living in the community um, in ways unimaginable. So, at its peak, how many people worked at the Oshawa facility? At um in the mid 80s, at the peak, there were 17,500 workers in the bargaining unit represented by the union and several thousand other workers, uh, salaried and, and, uh, and other people. So, well over 20,000 people were employed directly by GM. 20,000 people. And how about today? Today, there are 2,200 hourly workers who are GM employees, um, another couple of thousand that do work that used to be done by GM employees, but has been contracted out over the years. Um, so there's probably about 5,000 people who are, whose jobs are directly tied to the, the production of vehicles in Oshawa. 5,000. And so you mentioned that GM has, or the, sorry, the Oshawa facility has a reputation as being one of the most productive, the highest quality plants uh, among all auto factories in North America. And yet, GM has announced that it's going to close this plant down at the end of this year. What makes, how does that, how does that work? Why would GM 
want to close down one of its most productive facilities. Because it doesn't have anything to do with productivity. It has to do with plain and simple corporate greed. And our laws have made it, our trade laws have made it as such that they are able to move wherever they can maximize their profits. It doesn't matter if you have a workforce that's been dedicated, productive, overachieving, met every uh, milestone benchmark that they were asked to. It, it comes down to simply maximizing their profits in any way imaginable. You know, I agree with what Rebecca is saying. It's very clear that private ownership of socially important productive capacity, like like the auto industry, uh, when it's privately owned, then all the decisions get made based on what is best for uh, the major shareholders, for the, the people that control the corporation, and has nothing to do with uh, any kind of commitment to the workers or the community. And that's, you know, that's the last thing that they, they think about. They com- they're completely um, oblivious to, the, to the, what, the, the consequences, and the consequences to uh, the Oshawa community of this closure are, are going to be really quite severe. On that, Rebecca, you mentioned that, you know, your grandfather worked there. Um, it seems like there were a lot of families who their grandfathers worked there, their fathers worked there, their brothers worked there. So I'm wondering, you know, there's this real deep connection between the plant and the Oshawa community. So what was the, how did workers react to this news that GM was going to close at this facility? Anger and disbelief. I think the, uh, the community was shocked um, that it was actually happening. Although it's been a uh, cloud overhanging the community for over a decade because GM has been reducing its capacities in Oshawa for quite some time. But there was a lot of anger, especially there's been massive concessions given in contracts over the last decade. And we've continued to be extremely productive. Um, and so it felt like a deep betrayal to have this closure announcement. Just to pick up on what uh, Rebecca said about the anger that people felt, actually, the the plant was shut down for 24 hours after the announcement. Uh, people walked out of the plant, and uh, I think that there were, at that point there was um, an obvious willingness by by the workers to to fight what GM was doing, and and um, you know the they were prepared to to express their anger and and to to fight against what they saw as betrayal because. We had been told in 2016 that GM had agreed to maintain vehicle production through the life of our contract and beyond, which is to, to beyond 2020. So to be told that that was suddenly going to be ended um, a year early, people were furious. And um, people walked out, um, were very happy to be outside picketing. But, um, you know, then the history from that point on is is probably a little, little bit more mixed because I, I don't think that... The leadership stepped up to what the what the membership were prepared to do. So, Rebecca, you mentioned there was feelings of anger and betrayal amongst many of the workers in Oshawa. So, can you talk a bit about how did the how did your union union leadership respond to this to this decision? The union leadership walked out with the members after the announcement, and then they brought the members back into work the following day. Unifor proceeded to have a some will call it significant fight back, a very aggressive PR campaign against GM and what they were doing. Uh, it failed to include the uh, membership, I think, in any significant manner. 
Why do you say that? I mean, how does a PR campaign differ from the type of campaign that you think would be better at involving uh, workers? A PR campaign is good. It can draw attention to what's going on, but it it is slow moving and difficult to sustain, very expensive to sustain, and you run the risk of losing your media spotlight at any particular time. If you can involve your workforce and the community and the family and have everybody fighting for the same thing for a common cause, I think you'll end up with a stronger um, campaign. I think that's uh, what Rebecca's saying is, is certainly true. And it, it was striking to, to me the um, the lack of an attempt to involve workers. And one of the most revealing moments to me was when the, the plant chairperson of the, the GM unit at a membership meeting said that because Unifor was prepared to spend millions of dollars with uh, a PR company running ads, including ads in, during the Super Bowl, that therefore the workers didn't have to do the things that workers in the past had done. So we didn't have to have walkouts and strikes and and picketing because you know it was all going to be done by this PR firm. It was bizarre, I, I guess. Uh, and that was the way that the official campaign was run with no attempt to involve the workers, no attempt to use the strength that workers have at, at the point of production to really challenge GM. Oshawa, even up to today, is an incredibly profitable operation for, for GM. We're assembling pickup trucks as, as well as uh, uh, some sedans. The pickup trucks, GM makes a profit of about $15,000 profit from each vehicle, and we're producing 440 trucks a day. That's $30 million a week in profit. Uh, taking away a few weeks of that production would have had a real impact on GM, I think much more than um, the, the kind of PR campaign that, that they ran. No, the, the campaign that they ran took away the power from the employees. It made them uh, dependent on every decision that the leadership was going to make. It dampened their expectations, caused a lot of stress. I say dampened their expectations. It also raised their expectations. <laughs> so the the initial demand that Unifor made was that they're going to keep the plant open. Mm. And what we got was an open plant with only uh, 300 jobs and no more vehicle production. And that took a, um, it may not seem like a long time, but when your job is on the line and your future is on the line, a few months is an agoni agonizingly long process. Um, and the members were left always wondering what's supposed to happen next, what's coming next, what's going on with their talks. There wasn't any outlet for the anger and frustration. There wasn't any way to to really bring the community on board as well. Like we didn't even hold a rally in our city. They held a rally in Windsor, which was well attended, but in the city where the closure has been announced, we weren't able to even hold a rally. So I'm getting the sense that you both felt a pretty significant degree of isolation from the union leadership. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit more about um, what came of this BR campaign. I mean, I think you kind of touched on it, but did you, did you achieve anything else? Did you win anything else as a result of this massive PR campaign? Well, if the VIN starts with a three, the vehicle's not for me. I think that's a pretty well-known, <laughs> yeah, we got 300, 300 jobs at may increase somewhat over the next few years. 
we're losing 4,500 direct jobs. There's no replacement jobs coming to the community. So it's not like uh, it's harming the entire community, this job loss. Uh, I'm trying to think of silver linings to this, and I'm having a difficult time finding any. Right. <laughs> what, was the can- what was the slogan you just said? Oh, if the VIN starts with three, it's not for me. I think it was something like that. And it was uh, in reference to boycotting Mexican-made General Motors vehicles. If the VIN starts with three, it's not for me. What what is VIN? The vehicle identification number. It's on your. It's it's found in your uh, windshield by your dashboard. Every every vehicle has one. I see. So Mexican produced vehicles start start with, with three. three. I see. Yeah, the, and there was a, there was a a fair bit of controversy and pushback around that too, because there was a perception that there. Um, it's a it's a nuanced move that doesn't translate well, I don't think, in a mass PR campaign. Because you might be saying, well, this is about General Motors, but what people will generally hear is that this is about Mexico and Mexican workers. So then you get, well, Mexico is taking our job. Mexican workers, why won't they demand better? And it's a it's a mess from a... Reinforces the sort of competitive nature or the competition between Mexican workers and Canadian workers rather than making an effort to build solidarity amongst them. I would say so, yeah. Right. Were, were there differences in what higher seniority workers uh, received and what lower seniority workers received in maybe a, any sort of compensation package that came as a result of this closure? Yeah, there was a, a lot of um, disparity. I think a little bit of background is, is required because um, for the past over 10 years, We've had a collective agreement where people are hired at a at a second tier, much lower wages, uh, different pension, no no defined benefit pension, different benefits, and uh, it has created a lot of an incredible amount of uh, division, disunity, and th- those newly hired workers have been to a great extent sacrificed, really in the in the uh, with the objective of trying to entice GM to to remain by reducing their wage costs. Uh, but it's been at the expense of those workers and at the expense of unity in, in the workforce. And that certainly carried through on what the union uh, leadership negotiated um, with GM as a, as a resolve to this closure and of, and of vehicle production. And the, the senior people, who uh, especially those who are entitled to uh, full retirement, are also getting um, substantial incentive packages. And uh, the the new hires, I guess, the people who um, have been in a precarious position for for over ten years, getting a, a, just a, a fraction, a, offered only a fraction of that, and uh, and they don't have pensions, and they don't have a, a carry forward of any of any um, healthcare benefits. So it's really, um, I think, makes much more evident what you know the the weaknesses and problems with that that approach that the unions had for for a long time. Right. So not only do the lower tier workers receive poor compensation packages, but Oshawa, Canada, Ontario has lost thousands more jobs and has lost further lost manufacturing capacity. So GM did make at least a, a minor concession that you mentioned that there's going to be a facility in Oshawa that's going to employ something like 300 people where they're going to be what? testing electric vehicles or something along those lines what is it no it's uh it's going to be um i think they called it a after aftermarket parts that they'll be preparing and selling 
there's going to be an autonomous test vehicle track, but I don't believe that that's going to be tied into the productive work that the company's going to be keeping open there. So it's just a track. There's nothing to do with producing electric vehicles. Not that I'm aware of. I would expect it would have more to do with the uh, research and development that they have around the area than with produ- with production. Okay. Yeah, the the actual 300 jobs that is supposed to be the the result of the you know the union's campaign. First of all, GM has only promised to have those jobs in place by the end of 2020. So for more more than a year from now, people, uh, even those 300 people could be laid off for a large part of that time. And they're going to be mainly centered around um, the stamping plant. So stamping sheet metal parts. The stamping plant is maybe 5% of the, the Oshawa complex. And all the rest of it, where vehicles currently are assembled, all the assembly lines um, will not be used as as part of that. So it's a, a small percentage of the number of jobs, you know, maybe five or six percent of the jobs, and only about that percentage of the the entire complex will be used. The rest of it, um, there is nothing for in in terms of the agreement between Unifor and and GM. So there are lots of workers who are working at the GM facility who aren't actually employed by GM. Can we talk a bit about how this closure is going to affect them? So during the closure announcement and in the media, you would often hear that it's uh, 2,400 or 2,500 jobs at GM are being lost. And that's only half the story. There's about uh, just over 1,700 other direct jobs that are from our, our supplier plants. And many of those jobs were outsourced from GM. So they were they were good paying GM jobs that the company has outsourced and made significant cost savings because of wage reductions and suppression. Um, I, don't, I don't know what to say to 1,700 jobs that aren't being um, identified or recognized. I know the, the, supplier, the supplier plant people are making, I think at the highest end, it's 26 dollars an hour now and at the lower end it is uh just under 15 um and that's been going on for the last decade yeah how did that come into being that there are people who work there that aren't actually employed there well that the the outsourcing so i think it started there would be some uh sub-assembly or sequencing parts that would be outsourced from gm then there was things like the custodial work was outsourced. Um, so your custodial people would be in the plant still working. And something that they've just recently done in the last decade is allowed the supplier units to also have space in the complex. So as they as they reduced automotive production capacity from General Motors, they had empty space in the plant and they would move in uh, supplier companies to do work that was previously GM work. Um, to build on what, what Rebecca said, I, when I'm talking to people, they're really surprised a lot of times to find that there are workers in the plant, uh, in many cases working nearby or alongside GM employees, uh, doing jobs that used to be done by GM employees, but now they have they are working for third-party companies. And it's been a drive and strategy by GM to reduce their costs. They, their wages and are much lower. Their benefits are much lower. Um, but they're doing jobs that used to be done by GM workers. So even in the tire room where people are sequencing tires to be <clears throat> assembled to the uh, 
on the vehicles. They, they now work for a company called Oakley. There's a, a company named Siva Logistics that does some of the uh, sub-assembly and sequencing of parts and operating uh, lift trucks within the plant, delivering parts to the line side for the assembly workers. All used to be done by GM employees, now done by um, employees of Siva for uh, $17 to $20 an hour. So it's, it's um, another strategy that GM has used to divide up the workforce, weaken the workforce and, and unity and, and drive down their, their uh, labor costs. So th- there was, we mentioned earlier that GM has promised something around 300 jobs will stay in Oshawa. Can we, can we really trust that this is going to be the case? Our experience is that um, has been clearly we can't trust anything that GM says, but this particular promise is even more uh, on shaky ground because those 300 jobs are supposed to be in place by the end of 2020. But before we reach that point in September of 2020, our collective agreement ends and has to be renegotiated. So there really is nothing promised until it's renegotiated um, next year at a time when there's going to be potentially almost nobody working in the the Oshawa complex with any uh, ability to to take on the battle with GM if they say they've they've changed their mind. So I think that it's um you know a, a very shaky promise indeed. So was there any pushback to the national leadership's PR strategy? There was some pushback to the strategy. Um, So one of the things I said earlier is that the strategy didn't involve the membership. And what somebody else might say to that is the membership were front and center in that strategy. There was over a thousand people that attended the rally in Windsor. They had uh, several hundred people on two days. Uh, attend um, the Toronto Car Show to hand out leaflets. There was banner drops over the bridge to raise awareness for the issues that were well attended. Um, The membership participated, but they didn't have any decision-making ability. They they had no decision-making role in uh, in the campaign at all. I think Rebecca's really identified a a critical issue, which is that the members had no agency. They weren't involved in in discussing what should be done or how it should be done. When the campaign was announced, to, to take a one example, the, the PR company came up with the idea of using a, a Christmas tree in, in downtown Oshawa to hang uh, little messages on, calling it a tree of hope. And the membership didn't make that decision, and they would have rejected that as a, as a ridiculous idea in, in terms of uh, trying to change uh, GM's strategic decision. It was obvious that was, uh, that was futile. Uh, but there were people in the membership that wanted to play a much more active role in, in carrying the, the fight to GM. Uh, at one point, when the Unifor leadership really um, revealed that they'd struck out with GM and GM said they weren't going to change their their position. This was in uh, early February. Workers spontaneously sat down in the plant, basically occupied the plant for um, uh, five or six hours. And I think there was, a you know, that showed that people really wanted to play a role and use their strength as workers and take on the fight. And it, and it took um, the local leadership coming into the plant to 
convince people that they that they should leave and and uh, leave it you know go back to the um, the leadership's strategy. So there was a lot of that tension. There was a lot of pushback to the idea of focusing on vehicles assembled in Mexico because a lot of workers did see that as a as a dead end um, and wanted to to have more. Uh, solidarity with with GM workers in Canada, the United States, other countries. At at one point, there was a rally in Detroit that was sponsored by some rank and file uh, members of the UAW, where they were also they were also facing plant closures by GM around the idea of, of international solidarity. And our retired workers chapter decided to to charter a bus so that some of our members could go and attend that rally in in January. Uh, Members of the uh, Democratic Socialists of America took part in that. There were even uh, a few GM workers from Brazil who traveled to that rally to promote the idea that we needed an international fight back against what GM was doing. So there were other approaches and there were people at membership meetings who advocated the a rally in Oshawa like R- Rebecca was talking about but the leadership really s- smothered all of that so if there was such you know resentment among among the membership why would it be that the leadership would go only with a PR campaign that's a good question um as you look back on what unfolded is there was a definite unwillingness to cost GM any lost production time so they did a, it was a couple hour drive around the plant blockade um, that resulted in no effective downtime for GM. There was the blockade that they set up at the GM headquarters for, I guess it was about three days. But again, that resulted in no downtime for GM. Um, the workers, I believe at Lear Whitby, walked out for a shift and that resulted in a few hours of downtime. For GM. So there was displays of strength from our union, but they were always held back from actually having any significant impact on GM's bottom line. And I'm not sure I can give any answer as to why they would choose to do that. I agree with what Rebecca is saying. It, it, it seems almost inexplicable, but it also seems clear that the, the, the leadership of Unifor and the, at the national level has more of a conciliatory attitude towards corporations than in the auto industry, and I think probably beyond. But certainly, uh, with GM, Ford, and Chrysler, their approach has been, you know, what's been called team concept or or some kind of uh, collaborative effort where they want to ensure the corporations that they're working together with them and going to make them profitable. And that's that's seen in the context of this struggle, but it's also seen in terms of the the strategy of agreeing, allowing the corporations or agreeing with the corporations, reducing their wage costs through outsourcing and through the, the two-tier contracts. So I think it's all part of that outlook, which is not really being prepared to, to uh, take on the corporations and, and fight for what the membership needs. I I could add uh, that one of the things that was uh, frustrating about the campaign was the um, what seems to be a lack of vision about what is possible in Oshawa. The campaign focused solely on having GM stay and maintain its productive capacity. There was no overt political aspect to it. There was no petitions to members of parliament. Like it, it really felt like once. Doug Ford said that the ship has left the dock and 
Justin Trudeau said, we'll try to support Oshawa however we can, that that was the extent of holding um, accountability. And it was a perhaps a bit of a short, um, a missed opportunity at trying to ask for something much greater for uh, the community of Oshawa and auto workers. We know that the, th- the 300 jobs that GM has ostensibly promised is totally insufficient. We know that the union has been, the union leadership at the national level has been really bereft of ideas, but you guys have come up with your own set of proposals. Uh, why don't you tell, tell us a bit about what your, your idea is? Sure. I think that the obvious solution to um, the loss of 5,000 jobs in the community because corporations don't want, don't have a commitment to the community. They only care about their, their, their profitability. The obvious answer is some form of public ownership. That's what could maintain uh, the jobs and expand them and serve public needs rather than private greed. And that's what we've been advocating, that uh, the responsibility now should be on the provincial and federal governments to step in and maintain vehicle production, but that the, that, that should be combined with the, the necessary shift to uh, electric vehicles and a sustainable economy. So this is really an opportunity a huge opportunity. You have a huge productive capacity in, in a complex that's not going to be used. It should be used, but it also should be used to be part of a government commitment to shift the economy away from a fossil fuel-based transportation system. The goal of Green Jobs Oshawa, what we're advocating is that there be some form of public ownership, that uh, the government leads, that it be anchored on providing vehicles for government procurement, for example, electric vehicles for Canada Post, for other levels of government. Um, So government could make the commitment to use those vehicles, have them built in Oshawa, and that would sustain uh, the beginning of um, a shift to something which is incredibly important, which is a sustainable economy as well. So it would combine the need for jobs and the need to keep manufacturing in Canada with the need to transition away from uh, fossil fuels. So what kind of support have you, have you received from the Unifor leadership? We've been building support and we've been gaining support um, at a local level. We've got support from other unions. We've um, had a very significant achievement at the Ontario NDP convention in getting support there. What kind of support did you get from the NDP convention? The NDP, the Ontario NDP uh, passed a resolution that was extremely supportive of the workers of, of Oshawa in general, but to our, um, it's something that's very applicable to our cause. And the resolution called for, um, be it resolved, that the Ontario NDP stand with the people of Oshawa, Oshawa auto workers, and auto workers across Ontario in calling on the provincial and federal governments to maintain the manufacturing capacity at the Oshawa facility and to explore alternative forms of ownership, including a new vision of a publicly owned facility that could produce green vehicles and or any other product that meets public need in order to face a climate crisis and transition to a green new economy. Um, that's a, it's a pretty significant policy to have adopted, mm-hmm. particularly in, in line of what we're facing and advocating for in Oshawa. So do you get the sense that the union is making... When I say the union, I mean uniform national leadership. Are they making this the kind of policy priority that you would like them to be doing? 
No, they're not. I, I think that they could be doing a tremendous amount more. They haven't opposed our initiative. We've had more support at the local level. Local 222 of Unifor has endorsed uh, the mission statement of, of Green Jobs Oshawa. And the, the retired workers chapter in particular has been very supportive, uh, but we've had a real lack of enthusiasm from, from the national leadership. I think that, that one positive development was at the recent Constitutional Convention of Unifor, which adopted a, a resolution calling for a, a workers' Green New Deal in Canada. And while it didn't specifically mention Oshawa, it talked about the, the great importance of government investing massive resources in a shift to a renewable energy economy. It talked about the importance of public ownership. And so that at least can be, I think, the basis for um, building support for, for what we're trying to accomplish with Green Jobs Oshawa. So just to clarify, what your proposal is for the federal or the provincial government or some combination thereof to take over the plant and to run it as a public utility. So you're not talking about uh, workers taking it over and running it directly? No. Correct. No, we're not. Okay. Uh, Democratic democratic ownership, public ownership is what we're advocating for. Um, the investment that would be needed to make this happen, I think, quite frankly, is just out of reach for the average work person. We need to have the federal government in particular be supportive of this initiative. I see. So it's a matter of, I mean, it's such a huge investment that it's just too much for 2,500 or even 5,000 workers, auto workers in Oshawa to, to manage on their own. But on that note, okay, so we're talking about public ownership, government ownership. I mean, are these really popular ideas? Um, I mean, I recently read a poll that was uh, reported on the CBC that even among those Canadians who view doing something about the climate as one of their top policy priorities, something like less than half of them were willing to spend $9 a month to, to make anything happen. Is the political climate right to be advocating for public ownership, government ownership of, of a vehicle manufacturing facility. I just saw an internet meme that said something to the effect of, it's easier for people to imagine the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism. And I think that uh, what we're facing right now is people are obviously hungry for a change in direction. They are interested in what's going on with the environment. There's a sense of urgency. You can see by how popular, how quickly and how popular the ideas around a Green New Deal have, have become that people are paying attention to this. And this is a conversation that needs to get going. And I don't think people are comfortable at all when you say the idea of public ownership. I think it's something that they need time to really wrestle with and to come to terms with the alternative just hasn't been hasn't been good enough. The alternative that companies like GM have been leaving our communities and leaving leaving workers behind, leaving communities behind, while they're going off and making billions of dollars. Like it's a it's a pretty sickening thing that GM announced the closure of five five plants across North America and their stock prices increased. This isn't your normal situation of a closure where times are tough and they're struggling and so they they have to make these cuts. They're doing this simply to bolster their profits. They're highly profitable right now. There's no excuse for this type of behavior. And you know, there was a there was a, another little clip going around on the internet about Noam Noam Chomsky talking about the uh, about a decade ago that the idea of 
nationalizing the car plants was was actually happening, said that there was two choices that they had to make. The governments invested billions of dollars, and at that point, they could have nationalized the plants, and instead, they gave it back to private interests. So this isn't something that's completely far-fetched. Um, you see, other industries have been nationalized in the past. I, I think those are excellent points, Rebecca. Um, to directly address the poll that you're referencing, um, I think it's it's starting really from a false premise, which is um, asking Canadians, you know, what they're personally willing to spend to achieve something, is not the same thing as asking them what they think that their government should be doing. And uh, you know, I don't want to get into dueling polls or anything, but there's been some really significant polling this year that shows that there's very strong support from Canadians for government action, including. Um, a poll that asked people if they would support government sourcing, uh, replacing all of their vehicle fleets with electric vehicles. And there was, you know, something like 80% support from that. And that's really the, the policy that we're advocating is that if Canada Post and the federal government and provincial governments and municipal governments decided that they had to replace gas burning vehicles with electric vehicles and have those vehicles built in Canada and in Oshawa initially, that would be a huge step forward. And there would be very strong support for that. And so that would be using government resources to accomplish needs that are in all of our interests. And uh, that's different than asking people, you know, what they're individually willing to spend. I think that there's a recognition that we need, our economy needs to transition. And from a worker's perspective, that needs to involve a just transition. We know that the auto industry right now is in a massive transition. The technology changes that are happening are going to impact the way that we travel. The autonomous vehicles, the electrification, all of these things are going to cause a lot of upheaval. And I think it um, government has a responsibility to protect its citizens from the worst of this transition. So if this is a proposal that should be carried out by the federal government. What about all of those workers in other sectors of the economy, I mean, most notably oil and gas, who will be left behind by this kind of strategy, by this kind of move? How do you build support among oil and gas workers in Alberta? I mean, particularly in Alberta. How do we build, how would you build support among those workers for your proposal? I don't know if Re Rebecca wants to address this or not, but uh, I'll, I'll kick it off. One of the remarkable things at the Unifor Convention is that one of the strong speakers in support of the resolution for a workers' Green New Deal was a leader of Unifor representing energy workers in Alberta, Local 707A, because those workers, as much as anybody, realize that uh, massive changes need to happen and that there has to be a transitioning. But the way to do that transitioning is to make sure that, that workers are, are supported in it. You know, so th the potential is, is there, um, to, to have support from those workers as all workers because it's in all of our interests. I think that it's wrong if we frame this as an either or. So you can either support Green Jobs Oshawa, or you can support oil workers in Alberta, because we're all facing the same problems, which is that our industries are transitioning, and corporate greed is on a runaway train right now, and we're all getting left behind. So if we can find our commonalities and how we can best support each other 
instead of saying, well, if they go to electric, it's going to wreck things for um, the people in Alberta. Well, the fact is that we, it seems to be a widespread consensus that we need to move away from a high carbon economy, which is going to impact those jobs. And those people need support and their support shouldn't take away from our support and our support shouldn't take away from theirs. We should be supporting each other in, in this type of transition. Wouldn't some people say like, this is going to be way too expensive. Why should the federal government be, be involved in investing, what is it, billions of dollars in, uh, you know, a vehicle facility that will benefit only a small number of people in central Canada? And I think that the answer to that is that the benefit to uh, Canada as a whole and to the community in Oshawa in particular uh, is going to be well worth what the the uh, investment required would be. And we won't have uh, final numbers on that. We do have a feasibility study that will be released on September 19th that will we'll answer some of those questions in terms of uh, what the projected costs are, but the benefits will far exceed the costs. And by the way, if we're talking about government costs, we should ask what the benefit to Canada is of the Trudeau government spending $4.5 billion of our money on a 65-year-old rusty pipeline whose goal is to expand production of, of the dirtiest uh, fossil fuel on, on the planet. That harms all of us. It harms the world. Um, and our money is being spent on that. And that money went to a Texas-based oil company. How is that in the public interest? Um, we should be asking what we got for the government investment of $11 billion to, to GM during the financial crisis for their bailout. The, the government didn't get um, anywhere near all of that back. They're probably $3 billion short. And that money benefited GM shareholders, mainly in the U.S., uh, who have been making record profits since then. It hasn't benefited the workers who were forced to take concessions as part of that bailout package, and it hasn't benefited the community because GM's leaving anyway. So I'd say that we have already paid for that complex. That $3 billion is more than would be needed to take it over and to establish electric vehicle production in, in Oshawa. We know we don't know exactly how much it's going to cost, uh, but we know it's going to cost a lot. But I mean, you mentioned we probably already have paid for it. But um, maybe you could talk a bit more about, I mean, where are you going to sell these vehicles? Uh, you mentioned a little bit about the post office, but is this really feasible? I mean, are you going to have a big enough market? If we look at it as a as some form of of um, capitalist for profit operation, that that's not the way we're looking at it. Uh, if we look at it as government taking action that's necessary, but which also will meet needs, then I think that it makes all kinds of sense. Every level of government has vehicle fleets. And they should replace those vehicles with electric vehicles if we're going to make a commitment to confronting the climate crisis. And that could be done sooner rather than later. And that commitment would definitely uh, sustain the, the startup of electric vehicle uh, production in, in Oshawa. Uh, just an example from somewhere else. A few years ago, the post office in Germany made a decision that they were going to replace their vehicle fleet with electric vehicles and contracted with a startup company in Germany called Street Scooter that had a model of, of electric van uh, that met their needs and were so happy with it that they ended up 
buying street scooters, so it's now part of the German post office, and they're replacing their entire vehicle fleet uh, with electric vans, and that has led to an expansion of the manufacturing facility uh, of street scooter and thousands of jobs. So it, it is possible and it is sustainable. What does Green Jobs Oshawa plan to do in the coming months, and what kind of support can allies, including our listeners, offer? The next major event that that we're holding is a public forum in Oshawa on September the 19th. And at that forum, there'll be the release of the feasibility study, which I think will provide some real impetus for answering people's questions about whether or not this is possible and help us to mobilize support. So we are really looking for a major turnout of, of allies um, in Oshawa on September 19th. So if anybody is, is available at all, we would really love to have you there. There will also be a follow-up meeting um, in Toronto of, of supporters of this uh, project on uh, September 30th. So the people should watch for those events. If uh, any of the subscribers are on Facebook, if they could take time to come check out our page, uh, Green Jobs Oshawa, and give it a like and a follow. Another thing that listeners could do if you are members of a union or other organizations, if you could uh, ask, ask for endorsement of the Green Jobs Oshawa mission statement and campaign and send that along to us to let us know where our supporters lie. Tony and Rebecca, thank you for joining us today on Oats Breakfast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. Remember to subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, CastBox, and any other podcast app. You can support the work we're doing by going to patreon.com slash oatsforbreakfast and becoming a patron of the podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. Bye.